You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. We would like to remind you to head over to the Sportsman's Nation Facebook and Instagram pages to check out the new trailer for the very first ever short film titled Tradition. We're really excited about this project and hope you will enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it. All right, guys, welcome to another Land and Legacy Habitat Heroes podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. I'm super pumped up for this podcast. It's been a long time coming, and uh, it's been something that's kind of drifted around. We've got several friends that have, have mentioned this organization and these guys, and so it was just a matter of time before we connected. But we have Ben Jones and Sean Curran from the Rough Grouse Society. Fellas, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate you. It's the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. Let's there we go. These are timber. Yeah. Awesome. So, tell me, we've got I've got so many questions to ask you guys, um, but tell me a little bit about yourself, Ben. Why don't you kick it off? Well, I have been CEO of the Rough Grouse Society now for just a couple weeks, short of a year. And um, before that, for over a decade, I was Habitat Division Chief with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. So working for the the State Wildlife Agency in my home state of Pennsylvania. And uh, prior to that, and ran around in the in the South for a while. We can dig into some of those details after a bit if you want to. But uh, just coming up on a year with the with the Rough Grouse Society after being 13 years with the Game Commission and various opportunities before that. Awesome. So what's your current role there? Oh, my current role here is president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society. All right. Sean? Yeah, Sean Curran. I'm uh, vice president of mission sustainability here at the Rough Grouse Society. And uh, I've got the extremely long tenure of just about 60 days now under my belt. Uh, prior to that, I was working at the uh, Sportsman's Alliance, was over there for about five years, uh, just working on the kind of the advocacy side of, uh, you know, the outdoors uh, industry stuff um, and made the, uh, made the move to the conservation side um, just because of the, uh, the whole mission and ethos uh, of this organization. And uh, really what it means, not only to the grouse and woodcock hunters, but to really everybody who's out there, um, you know, hunting in our forests and, and, and just enjoying the outdoors. Um, but, you know, prior to, to those ventures, you know, I came from the for-profit side of things, um, had a pretty successful career um, in sales and sales management, uh, but just been a lifelong outdoorsman. I love doing anything outside hunting, fishing, trapping. I just, I've got to be outside and enjoying nature and, and all that it provides for us. Awesome. So for our listeners, you guys may recognize Sean from being a, uh, on the podcast that Matt interviewed you guys back in the fall, I believe, with uh, Sportsman's Alliance. So welcome back, Sean. And uh, here we go with RGS, American Woodcock Society. But uh, my question to you guys, why Rough Grouse Society? Yeah, you guys are, are familiar with the number of conservation groups that are out there. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that this is a very well-known fact, but it is a fact. Here, uh, Rough Grouse Society, we 
coming up on 60 years of advocacy for con uh, conservation and habitat management. And during all of those 60 years, 1961 was when RGS was started. During mm. that entire period, the tenet of the Strauss Society has been um, supporting scientific wildlife and forest management. So basing it on the research, basing it on the science and, and good information, how best to manage properties for wildlife conservation and, of course, for hunting opportunity as well. That, in a nutshell, for me, is why the Rough Grouse Society. Prior to coming here, I was managing a million and a half acres, another two and a half million acres of, of private lands enrolled in access programs. And you know, growing up in Pennsylvania by rights, I thought, man, I, I've got the best job in the whole world. This is it. I was not looking when a friend sent me the application for uh, for this position. And then I got thinking about RGS and you know, the opportunity to have uh, water impact and engage with all the passionate members and member conservationists that uh, support the Rough Grouse Society. And it was just too awesome an opportunity. And, uh, you know, interviewed with the board of directors and they saw a good match. And that's, that's what got me here a year ago. Awesome. Yes, that that's very cool. So I guess for Sean, I'm going to ask you, 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 you explain your experience. What is it about the art? RGS that drew you in to to want to pursue a, a, a career there? Yeah, I mean, it it, it kind of became, um, you know, a, a big picture question for myself and thinking about the role that hunters play, you know, as far as wildlife management and, and conservation, you know, here in North America. Um, you know, hunters, we do a, a pretty good job of kind of calling ourselves conservationists you know, but do we really understand what that means? You know, is it are we just saying that because we go out and buy our hunting licenses and our tree tags <laughs> and turkey tags? Yeah. Um, or are we really truly, you know, doing something to make a difference, to, to make an impact? You know, not only right now, but fifty years down the road, a hundred years down the road, you know, because those things that we do today are gonna have those long lasting impacts. Uh, and then I started looking into the organization and really uh, um, digging into the mission of kind of who they are and what they do um, and kind of kind of comparing that to um, you know several different things and looking at the North American model of wildlife conservation and you know one of the things that we say as hunters is that you know through that we have yet to have a you know a game species you know um, go extinct or be um, be threatened or things of that nature but here we have a situation where you know in our lifetimes we could actually see that with rough grouse. And so what are we doing as hunters? What are we doing to make a difference to, to really stop and reflect and, and make some effective changes to the way that we're doing things? How can we get more involved um, to, to get more boots on the ground, get our hands dirty, start going out and managing the habitat so that we don't have that situation you know, under, under the North American model? Um, and that's, this group and this organization have been really quietly doing that you know for 60 plus years now uh, but this is definitely an organization that needs uh, needs everybody to really start getting involved and um, start paying attention and, and making an impact out there because it's not only just about grouse but it's about you know, so many other species that share that same habitat that the grouse and woodcock you know uh, thrive in you know it benefits white-tailed deer it benefits turkeys it benefits you know, so many different songbirds and small game species. So, um, so those are the types of things that really resonated with me, and um, you know, it became a no-brainer for me to, to jump in and get involved. Man, you hit it out of the ballpark. For a man in my shoes that's sitting here listening to you guys talk and fighting ADHD and already already a cup of coffee in, you you wanted me or you sent me into wanting to go down many, many rabbit trails in that, in that, uh, statement right there. But one thing I want to, I want to go back to is you said it, um, that kind of that emphasis on, on what you're doing for conservation as hunters, we're buying a tag or is that as far as we take it? And Matt and I've said it on our podcast before 
that just buying your tag isn't enough anymore. We need to be doing more to the landscapes for the habitat, for the wildlife, for the land, instead of just buying our tag and saying that we're part of conservation. And uh, I've kind of been thinking on my in my head uh, of this kind of theory, but uh, and I kind of just drafted up my head just not too long ago, but this habitat to hunt ratio. And for, for me, that kind of goes down to how much time do I spend focused on habitat versus how much time do I spend hunting? And for me, I, I know I spend way more time on the habitat than I do on the actual hunting. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are spending way more time on the hunting side and very little on the habitat. And so their hunt to habitat ratio is, is way, way different than what mine is. And it's going to take a lot more habitat than it is hunting to really make a difference for species like the rough grouse, the bobwhite quail, um, and other these and other species. And so um, I'll say this, when it comes to people doing habitat work, um, unfortunately, it seems like deer kind of hits a default. Like there's the deer can live in a wide variety of places where the habitat may be poor. They thrive where it's good, but it takes a lot of work to really get a healthy population of bobwhite quail, rough grouse, or rough grouse, and and woodcock. So, doing that work, it seems like guys like you and societies like you are doing a lot of really awesome work for the habitat because you have to to have the species that you guys are focused on. And not only by doing that work, though, are you helping the species like the rough grouse, but the entire landscape and we've got uh, a great story to come up on uh, later on in the podcast to explain exactly what I mean there. Yeah, that's a really important point. So a couple of things there and actually you're helping me. You're a little bit of therapy on this because I was struggling some this spring and I even said to my, my wife, you know, I love the spring turkey hunt. I always have. And you know, it would come down to working on getting some RGS initiatives done or, you know, going out turkey hunting. And I was honestly more motivated by doing the habitat stuff with RGS than going hunting a few days. And I was like, man, what is going on with me? There's, there's something <laughs> wrong with me that I'm, I'm here at the computer and more pumped up about working on this habitat initiative than I am about going turkey hunting. I was going to have to commit myself. Yeah. But, you know, it is, it's so important to stress, and this is something that we need to start communicating out there, that this is about a lot more than rough grouse. And for this organization, rough grouse really are the flagship. And, you know, they're a bellwether for forest health. And when we see at this point, like Sean mentioned, within our lifetime, rough grouse are proposed for endangered species listing in the state of Indiana. They're also listed in 18 state wildlife action plans that based on notable declines in rough grouse populations, that they're a species of conservation concern. So rough grouse are a bellwether for forest health. And when you've got 18 states that are listing them in a state wildlife action plan, you better really sit up and pay attention uh, because it's not only going to impact rough grouse. And this organization isn't just about rough grouse either. We're about forest health. We're about hunting opportunity and overall wildlife conservation. We just got a really good ambassador in the King of Game Birds. That is awesome. Yep. Well, what do you guys think about, and this is in my notes, but Matt and I have talked about this, and we actually have a uh, presentation that we uh, put together for the state banquet for Quail Forever in Missouri. And it's really on advocating and finding out your audience to where, um, let's say you're doing forestry management, and some people that are non-hunters may say, uh, oh, you're just doing that so you guys can shoot more deer. But if you explain to them, hey, no, we're actually just doing this for the health of the forest, and because of doing this, we're going to have more uh, rough grouse and woodcocks, which uh, rough grouse is struggling, so we're trying to bring that, that game bird back. Um, but 
there's many other species that are non-game um, that are going to thrive in this, um, that, are, that need this disturbance. Um, because of this work, there's going to be a healthier forest, which means there's going to be we're fighting climate change and so on and so on to where instead of putting it out there at, oh, we're doing this work to shoot more grouse, it's more of a we're doing this work to benefit the grouse. Um, but there's so many other things that are benefiting. Uh, it sounds like you guys are right in line with that. Well, you know, you really, uh, what we have to do as an organization is do more than pay lip service to that idea that this is benefiting, you know, these other species. Yep. And so just just a couple brief examples, and there's a whole bunch of this going on. Um, after our call today, I'm going to be talking with Sean Groff, who is the American Bird Conservancy Coordinator for the Great Lakes State. And we're cooperating with them on some grant applications right now for habitat work. That's America, the American Bird Conservancy. Um, have another agreement with Audubon where actually we're co-funding uh, Audubon, Pennsylvania, and hiring several foresters to do some of this work on private land. Also, with the American Bird Conservancy, we recently applied for a quarter-million-dollar grant and received it through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. So we're partnered directly with the American Bird Conservancy on that big project, as well as two other projects where the American Bird Conservancy applied for the grant but the Rough Ground Society provided the matching funds. Mm. So you've really got to put this into action and show those partnerships of working with groups like Audubon, the American Bird Conservancy, what, you know, those of us in the soup would, wouldn't be a, not, it would be, wouldn't be a traditional partner for us. And in fact, two decades ago when I was working on Rough Grouse research, um, many times uh, we found ourselves at odds over forest management with groups like Audubon. And uh, that's really changing, and that's a big difference. Wow. That, that is very encouraging to hear. Very encouraging. So for our listeners, what's the overall mission? If you could sum up the mission of uh, Rough Grouse Society in, in a couple sentences, what would that be? Well, we've got the, the three pillars, I guess, from a marketing standpoint that really sums it up very well. It's abundant, uh, healthy forests, abundant wildlife, and conservation ethics. So melding all this whole idea together of of hunter conservationists and overall forest health and that overall forest health being reflected in abundant wildlife, I think that really brings that, that mission together. But again, over this, you know, coming up on 60 years, the Rough Ground Society and making decisions has always fallen back on we are going to support the scientifically proven um, wildlife management and forest management techniques. You know, wildlife management and forestry has come a long way as a profession over the past many decades, and we need to trust in those professionals and the work that they do. So that's, that's really at the core also. That's it. Perfect. So explain to me, we've mentioned it several times, uh, we keep talking about healthy forest. What exactly is a healthy forest? All right, we'll, we'll dive in a little bit on this. We'll... <laughs> We're going to spend some time here, huh? <laughs> so what, you, guys, you guys are the MC. just cut me off when you need to. Okay. Okay. Let, let's take, we'll, we'll start with a bit of a, just a broad history lesson, and y'all and many of your listeners probably know this well, that, you know, give or take 20 years around 1900, uh, most of the Midwest and the eastern United States, practically the whole country, was cut. It was over-exploited. It was, all that timber was harvested, and that was the birth of the conservation movement. There was market hunting at that time. And that's when people like Gifford Pinchot and Theodore Roosevelt started setting aside our conservation lands and the birth of the conservation movement occurred. And, it, of course, it's been an unreal success. What we are seeing now with our forests across huge landscapes is really the legacy of that over-exploitation, give or take 20 years from 1900. And what we've got across the landscape now is a forest that is largely single-aged forest 
in that somewhere between 90 to 125-year age range. And in working with all kinds of landowners, public and private, the first thing that I do when I'm looking at a property to assess it is I want to look at a map, and I want it to show the general cover type, what kind of forest, and then the next thing is really the age of that forest. And I like to color code the age, you know, on like zero to five-year-old forest, six to 20-year-old forest, and so on. So that when I look at that map, if I see just a single color on that map that means there's a single age class, then that's pointing me in the direction that I, that I know we need to go. And in an awful lot of cases, and I know you guys see this too, you're looking at a single colored map when you do that assessment or that inventory on that property. And this is what we have across huge landscapes. <laughs> I swear, listeners, I, I did not tell him to say this, I promise you. Um, one of our presentations that Matt and I, not to cut you off, but it's too good. One of our presentations that we did at the uh, Quality Deer Management Association National Convention last year was color coordinating habitat types. And the emphasis is on... on if there is one color covering a vast, a vast landscape, there's a huge problem there, and we need to diversify it. So, it's funny you say that, but you're using the same technique, but more specifically on forest age class, we used it on different habitat types. But it's the same thing. Diversity is is hugely important. Yeah, and you know, young young forest doesn't start as forest. So what you're bringing up is really important. And I also include, it's not just forest, but in those maps to look at what do you have there for maybe it's currently row crop agriculture. That yeah. if let to revert becomes old field, which if let to revert further becomes shrubland. So I also include those really uh, young age classes that aren't forest yet, but I know if we left them alone, maybe got rid of the fescue, they could start becoming forest. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Boy, you just you're you're hitting it out of the park. So if if you're if you were to sum up grouse habitat or grouse habitat management or woodcock management in one word, what word would you give it? Diversity. <laughs> I figured you were going to say that, but I've been asking that to multiple people lately. Uh, we've got some quail specialists, quail biologists, and I asked them to explain it, and they said the same thing, diversity. And if you if you ask Kip Adams the same question for whitetails, he's going to say diversity. Exactly. And if you ask, if you ask Mark Turnett, a bear biologist, what's the key for bear habitat, it's diversity. That's right. If you look at neotropical migrants, whippoorwills, it's diversity. Yes. Yes. And so how do we take that? You know, we all know diversity is, is king, but if we look at, on average, the landscape, diversity is not occurring. How do we get that message across to where, I guess the biggest hurdle we've always fought for Matt and I in, in uh, our consulting side is how can we use the work that needs to be done to also be a benefit to the to the checkbook of the landowner? And through forestry yeah. management, that's been a big one to say, okay, we can figure out how we can make some money off the forest, but improve uh, improve the health of the forest. Well, that is a key, I think, difference. And something that provides optimism for me when we're looking at forest wildlife with rough drought as the bellwether. So let me just key in on diversity real quick. And, you know, if, if people are talking about rough droughts, you often get kind of hung up on the young forest piece, the early successional piece. Yes. And you hear about how rough droughts are an early successional specialist. Well, this is absolutely true uh, that that having that age class as part of their habitat is absolutely important. But if I had a thousand acre property and I went and I create, made the whole thing into young forest through a timber harvest or whatever, that would not be good grouse habitat. The key is that interspersion, and I hate to get kind of jargony there, but the mixing, the, the mosaic 
of that young forest with older forest, and grouse need all of those things. And if you think of a simplified model, work that was done um, right around the time the Rough Grouse Society came into being by Gordon Gulland, he started laying out in the lake state these checkerboards. And it was kind of the, uh, the best way to maximize diversity in Aspen. You cut a checkerboard of different parts of the checkerboard every 10 years. And over time, then you had all these age classes interspersed with each other. And as you guys know, as, as mountain guys, you can't just lay a checkerboard out, but the concept is still the same. You want to intersperse the timber harvest or some other kind of early successional habitat with places that aren't going to be disturbed for a while. So that's the key to diversity. And then the next step that you just took us to was with forest management. So this is a key difference with um, forest diversity is that it can, because it involves harvesting a, a marketable material, it can pay for itself. And you guys know how much goes into the Farm Bill and Conservation Program, uh, in particular with quail and other grassland species. Uh, in a lot of cases, that's taking productive ground out of production, and we're having to replace that commodity with taxpayer dollars. To yes. create interspersed diverse forests, that can pay for itself and help the landowner hold on to that land if it's a private landowner. Or it can help fund other wildlife programs if it's a public landowner. So that's a key difference with forest management and creating forest diversity. Wonderful. Absolutely. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Uh, and I just, for our listeners, who's who's a deer hunter through and through, and he's going, what in the heck do I care about a rough grouse? The, the same type of management should be done on your property if you're focused on deer, too. The deer are going to benefit from this just as much as a grouse. Adding that diversity, the early successional habitat to where you've got uh, browse throughout the growing season, and then you've got young forest, so you've got winter browse uh, and, and other browse throughout the year. It's hugely important and can benefit your deer just as much and even more than yeah, you, than the food plots that you've been putting in. Well, you've also got security cover. You've got fawning cover. You've got, as you mentioned, that browse. You've also got different stages of mass production from your older stands producing hard mass to your younger stands producing soft mass. And in fact, you know, having been a student of habitat management for a long time, and an avid uh, deer enthusiast and deer hunter, there's no question to me that the carrying capacity for a property is defined by that interspersion of disturbance and age classes. For white-tailed deer, exactly the same as it is for rough grouse. And in fact, when I bear hunt with my friends in, in Pennsylvania, we're going into the same areas that we're grouse hunting. Then the next week when deer season comes in, I'm going to the same areas where I was bear hunting, where I was grouse hunting before that. Those interspersed habitats with the managed forest. That's right. I, I think it's, it, we miss it at some point as a society going, ah, uh, this is my deer property. This is where I'm focused on deer management. But if managed appropriately, you should be able to have financial gains from timber management all the way to great habitat for grouse hunting and great habitat for deer hunting, bear hunting. Um, it can all coexist. We just have to know how to manage it. And Ben right here is pouring out some, uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose, I imagine, for people on, on the management that can be done and, and uh, not only benefit the checkbook, but benefit the wildlife and the landscape most importantly. Well, I want to take it also, you know, we're, we're kind of keying in on, on properties and maybe private properties a bit, but it's also important for those public land users um, to insist that this management is occurring to maximize opportunity and wildlife conservation on our, our dearly held public lands as well. And in a lot of cases, that conversation has kind of tilted the other way with people who are pretty vocal uh, against active forest management. I think it's really important for hunters that are using public lands because it's a difference maker. If 
you're on public lands, whether you're going into a place that's all 85-year-old single-age closed canopy forest, or if you're going into an area that has a sustainable um, harvest and prescribed fire and forest management program, it's, it's night and day difference for your hunting opportunity on those public lands. Absolutely. So how can somebody take the knowledge and help be a part of Rough Grouse Society? Obviously, there's memberships, but what do you guys do specifically to um, to help with putting habitat on the ground? With all of our uh, fundraising events, so uh, when you become a member, hopefully you're going to get engaged and you're going to find it uh, rewarding to be able to hang out with other people who are similarly minded to you and attend an event, whether it's a, a shoot or a dog training day or a banquet or a rendezvous or some other kind of events we're trying to get rolling, uh, those are also fundraising events. And a proportion of those fundraising events stays right there in that state for Habitat projects. So I think that's a big deal for members to understand that in addition to contributing, you know, to the larger mission, um, that some of those funds are also staying right there in that state for them to determine where they're being used. You know, those members within that state, and we call them our state drummer funds, they determine what projects uh, those funds that they helped raise are going for. So the Rough Grouse Society is really just the conduit for our member conservationists to help enact their conservation goals and their conservation vision. And uh, we give all the ability in the world to be able to do that. I think the State Drummer Fund is a really good example of those funds staying closed and the members actually deciding as a group where they're going to be used. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. So how can they, obviously, roughgrousssociety.org, um, are you guys on, you guys are on Facebook and Instagram as well. Is that just Rough Grouse Society? Yeah, absolutely. You can look for different uh, state Facebook pages and uh, chapter pages in Rough Grouse Society. We also have kind of the, you know, the mothership Facebook page and definitely at Rough Grouse Society on Instagram. And uh, I'd love to get with anybody on Instagram, too. And my tag is at Ben Jones underscore Forest Wildlife. There you go. Yeah, Check him out. You know, it, it's really one of the things that's most encouraging, and I think with forest management, it's going to take a cultural change for people to start embracing forest management and realizing how it's an important part of forest health and climate adaptation and all this other, all these other things that are going on. And um, it's going to take a cultural change, but cultural change is possible now on a much quicker scale because of social media. So we really are, are making a move uh, to be communicating better and, you know, talking about the things we've been discussing here through social media. Absolutely. For sure. I, I don't know if I dare do this, but I'm going to anyway because that's just my personality. But when we're talking about society and trying to make a cultural change – Usually you have to, we're not going to get it, we're not going to win over the, the whole large majority of society by saying that we want more grouse so we can have better hunting. But there are things that we can pivot off of. And healthy forest management and the research behind it um, and, and its role in climate change can play a huge part in that. And I didn't talk with you guys about this show notes, so we may be throwing I'm maybe throwing a huge curveball. But is there any correlation? You guys are in Pennsylvania and there's all kinds of stuff in the news about Lyme's disease and what and its role in, in the in your guys' region and, and I don't know if it's true. I haven't had time to go read it, but I think I saw somewhere where it said that like fifty percent of the ticks that were tested in western or eastern pa had lyme disease is that correct or uh, let's just talk about lyme disease uh in the northeast well it's really at epidemic proportions and that's not you know just me being dramatic and throwing that word out there for effect i think state 
agencies are really looking at Lyme disease being at epidemic proportions. And when you talk about a holistic view and what would, do we do about Lyme, um, when I was fire program manager at the Pennsylvania Game Commission, we actually did some transects and surveys looking at the impact of prescribed burning on ticks. And there had been some work done. We certainly weren't the first ones to do this. That looked at uh, prescribed fire and burn rotations and what impact it had on ticks. And in central Pennsylvania, um, we found that this was kind of a no-brainer, that immediately after fire, you had an 80, 90% reduction in tick numbers. And that kind of makes sense. But the thing that started to surprise us a bit was that reduction in tick numbers lasted for several seasons and through several years out, that by year two, you still had a 60% reduction in ticks that was hanging on. And uh, it seems there's more work being done on this, but it seems that the causal factor here is that with fire and with restoring those native vegetation types that were fire adapted, those vegetation types aren't as uh, hospitable for ticks. So ticks dry out very quickly in, in uh, more fire prone habitats. Where if you've got, think about a bunch of bush honeysuckle and you know, it's shading out the ground and it's got a very moist environment in there. It's wall-to-wall bush honeysuckle and autumn olive. That's a really good environment for ticks. But if you have more diverse habitats with some forbs and native grasses and you've got frequent fire coming through there, that environment is less hospitable to ticks. So when you look at fire being completely removed from the landscape and what we're seeing now with ticks, uh, those things, I believe, are some, they're, they're linked in some ways. So tie that in with grouse. How does that prescribed fire, we haven't talked about fire a whole lot yet, how does prescribed fire and the diversity of, of that with the landscape diversity benefit the grouse? So talking about prescribed fire specifically in creating diversity, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Let's hear how that affects the, the grouse. Yeah, well, it, fire is a disturbance factor for sure. And... Um, several different ways the fire can impact that habitat diversity is we talked about forest management to create younger forests or early successional areas through forest management. You've got a lot of ground throughout the Appalachians, and this is Maine to North Georgia and then in the Midwest, that isn't really commercially viable. It's bony, rocky sites that historically used to burn, and we know this from a fire history study in Pennsylvania, they used to burn every three to six years. And what it maintained was the shrubby habitat. Um, in some areas it was scrub oak, but there weren't trees on a lot of that because it was maintained in that shrubby brush condition by frequent fires, either natural fires or Native American set fires. So. There's one way that having fire back on the landscape can help with habitat diversity by constantly rejuvenating and making more resilient those some of those ridge tops and south and west facing habitats. The other piece, and we want to talk about forest management, but we don't want to just talk cutting for the sake of cutting. We want to talk about sustainable forest management where your future forest after you cut that forest is one that you want. So you need to make sure that you've got desirable seedlings on the ground. And if you've got an oak stand, you want to make sure that if you harvest it, you're going to have an oak stand for the future. That's the place where prescribed fire becomes really important pre-harvest or during some of those first entries where you're running a fire through there and favoring those oak seedlings for that future forest because oaks are more fire tolerant than a lot of the non-tolerance like uh, red maple and birch. And we've got a lot of data from this single-aged forest that we're losing our oaks because of the encroachment and um, increasing abundance of things like maple and birch and beech in the absence of fire. So um, fire becomes really important in prep for timber harvest as well. Mm. How have we not had you on the podcast yet? You're preaching everything we, we love to preach. 
I mean, well, I hope I hope your listeners don't find all this repetitive. Though, <laughs> I don't think they will. I Maybe think they're gonna. Like we heard all this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're. Oh man, it's it's exactly what we we've talked about here in the here in the Midwest. Um, our, we're traditionally at Oak Hickory Forest and, and most of the, on most of the landscape. And due to lack of fire, a lot of our woodlots or our, our forests, the understory is now being taken over by some invasives, but also at Eastern Red Cedar is another big problem to where I've talked so much on our podcast about, um, the encroachment and, and the lack of disturbance is going to change the the long term effects on our on our forest. We're going to go from oak hickory to other other type of forest or other type of landscapes because we're letting our oaks grow up. We're not we're not managing them, and if they are harvested, we haven't allowed fire or put fire on the landscape or had an, enough um, timber stand improvement to where there is the next generation of oaks coming up. To where once those oaks die or are harvested, we're just releasing it for the cedars or the non-natives to to flourish, and it's going to be at the it's going to be a huge cost to the wildlife and to the landscape. And so, what you're talking about is exactly what we've been dealing with here in the Midwest. Of we need to continue our natural disturbances so we can have these future grouse hunts and uh, the future health of of our landscape. And, and those habitats, I think resiliency is something really important to hit on here, that with fire as part of those systems, as it historically was since glaciers retreated and it became stepland and forest, with fire present there at appropriate timing, those forests are much more resilient. And, you know, those woodlots that you're describing in the Midwest, that's exactly the condition of those woodlots in eastern Pennsylvania that at this point are absolutely full of ticks. Yes. So you've talked about something that, for me, when I was in college, and even just right after college when I was working for the Missouri Department of Conservation, there were still some people within the department that believed this, that there is a separation or there should be a separation between prescribed fire and timber management. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I don't think there can be. So there are some considerations, you know, getting into the next level of detail here with our discussion. So um, depending on timber markets, let's say you need to go in and do kind of a low commercial or pre-commercial thinning uh, to get some a bunch of birch and maple poles out before you start tending to an oak stand. So you're going to be depending on pulpwood markets to get that to get that pole sale uh, out of there and to get it marketable so if that pulp market is based on paper then you're probably not going to want to run a fire through there right before because yep. operators aren't going to want to char because of the product if they're harvesting it for chips or biofuel it doesn't matter if it's charred you know so there's one of those cases where you have to think specifically about what are the markets and what's going on here. Now, the other piece is uh, an unfounded fear that any charring on saw logs is going to decrease their value. And there actually was some uh, work done through the University of Missouri. Joe Marshall did a study there looking at saw log quality in areas that had been burned multiple times. And there wasn't a significant reduction in that saw log quality. But here, again, it comes into your, your burn plan and what prescriptions you put in for that fire. You know, you're not, if you have a, a high-quality oak stand that you're doing a first entry with fire in, uh, and you've opened up that canopy a little bit, and your, your fuels suggest that uh, if it's a 20, if you're, humidity is at 25% that your fire behavior is going to give you flame length and flame height, you know, five to 10 feet really scorching those trees. You're going to want to back that prescription off and make sure you're running a low intensity fire through there. You know, with thought toward those standing oaks that may be um, available for a future harvest, or you would want to kill them also because you need them to produce future mass. 
But all that just comes into dialing in your prescription and that burn plan and how you do it. Absolutely. Mm. So. And you can't be afraid to make mistakes either. I'm doing a webinar later on today about a, a burn that I bought back in 2016, and we just got dealt a uh, kind of a crazy hand on a weather flip for the day, and it got a lot drier and fire behavior was more intense than we thought. So we did end up killing some oak trees on these ridge tops, and everybody was really upset about that because it wasn't our intent. But looking back on it three years later, you should see the oak regen in there in the response after opening up that canopy on those little ridge lines. Mm. It looks pretty cool. It's really natural interspersion too, which was kind of neat. That's very cool. So if I, I know this isn't an ideal question, but if you had to do one thing to manage your landscape for grouse, which would you feel is more important? Timber management through mechanical means, chainsawing or uh, forestry machines or prescribed fire? I don't think you can, I don't think you can do it for grouse uh, because they have a broad, across their range, the forest types that they occupy are so diverse. Uh, so I don't, I just don't think it works. Some of those <laughs> systems, like made up aspen systems, they're just, you're not going to be able to get them to burn after they're a certain age, so fire doesn't become available. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're somewhere in the Appalachians and you've got a, a southwest ridge that isn't marketable, fire is going to be your answer. Yeah. But you're certainly going to want to have the tool of forest management on higher quality sites in the Appalachians. So I really don't think that they're separable. I, I mean that. Okay. Awesome. Well, I, I, would, I would love to – I mean, I couldn't agree more with that when it comes to – if somebody asked me that for for uh, whitetail management, I'd be like, yeah, I, I – I'm still going to pick both. I don't I don't care what you say, but um so let's talk about some of the species that that you like for I, I'm I'm a plant nerd, so I want to hear some of the species that you like for rough grouse. So, when it comes to large or timber, what are some of the tree species that you like to see on the landscape that are beneficial to the grouse? Yeah, you know, I'm going to go right back to the same key word and this key word is important at many different spatial scales so we talked about the landscape what do we need diversity so uh, we talked about different stands the patches what do we need diversity going down to the plants we still need diversity yep it's especially true with rough grouse across most of their range where they depend on a broad variety of foods from Hard mass, whether it's uh, the infrequently producing beech, which don't get me started on beech, but, but in good beech years, which are not don't occur very often, beech is important. You're also going to want the hard mass from oak, and believe it or not, a grouse can choke down a red oak acorn. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No but doubt. they also depend a lot on soft mass. They also depend a whole lot on that greenery on the forest floor. Uh, wild strawberries, stink foil, different kinds of fern. Uh, rough grouse also eat a lot of different kinds of buds. Depending where you're at, it could be uh, cherry buds, birch buds. Certainly the, the king of them all where they occur is aspen buds during the winter. Mm. Uh, with hazel, all the different shrubs, viburnums, uh, pokeweed, soft mass, and, and don't forget about that critical period that's coming up right now between uh, hatch and a couple weeks post-hatch, where that new year of rough grouse is out there and they're about two inches tall on the ground, they need a bunch of bugs. So to get a bunch of bugs, you need a lot of diverse structure on the forest floor, a lot of forbs, interspersed grasses, uh, open space you know, just like with quail chicks. So, man, it really, really is about diversity in plants. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'm sitting here while we're talking about grouse. I'm thinking about I, I, I reread Sand County Almanac this year, and, and, you know, Aldo Leopold talks so much about grouse in there. And 
I and I think I'm I'm having because this was three books ago, but I think I remember him talking about killing a grouse and checking out the crop, and there was something in it that he didn't recognize, and he couldn't figure out what it was, and ended up being a evergreen um, bud. Is that correct? Is my memory correct on that? I think it was a uh, a white pine that I think they call it the candle. It was the very top tip of a of a white pine. Is that what it was? I re- I remember that excerpt too, but I can't remember what the take home was for what was in that crop. I I think I remember him saying that it was he had of course any time he killed one he always checked to see what they were eating and it and it was during the winter and he was like I don't know what that is but it was actually the broke down inside piece of the very top or the very end of the growth on a white pine. But, yeah, they, they really are omnivorous and eat all kinds of different buds and, and soft mass and hard mass. But you know what? If you took rough grouse out of that conversation that we had, what could you replace it with? I, I could replace it with black bears. I could replace it with white-tailed deer. Yep. As far as all the same diverse food needs and cover needs throughout the year. Absolutely. So... Not to get off off that topic, but if you're if it's if it's the fall sometime and you have the opportunity to go deer hunting or grouse hunting, which one are you going? Well, this has been a, an interesting transition for me. I have a seven year old male tricolored English setter at home. Uh, I also have three kids at home, ranging from five to uh, fourteen, and. Um, taking on a new job here and a lot of things going on with my career at the game commission, like many of us, man, my time for hunting was limited. And so really for me, it became a protein acquisition decision that, all right, if I can go hunt today and, you know, I can get a doe with this doe tag, that's going to go a lot further in the (laughs) freezer than up over that hill and maybe getting a shot or two at a grouse and then honestly in all likelihood not bringing home any protein (laughs) yeah i was going i was going deer hunting but that that certainly didn't mean i didn't mix in some grouse hunting with it and i'll tell you what another one uh that's a lot of fun and is more accessible to a lot of people is woodcock and that's that's fine dining as well. So we want to start talking a lot about opportunities with woodcock and what that means for upland hunting too. Absolutely. I so I've never actually gone on a grouse hunt. Um, grew up quail hunting. That was the big thing until quail numbers were so far gone that we bird dogs got old and and it was just a depressing time to to try and chase quail. Um, I imagine grouse hunting can be very similar for a lot of people but uh in the in the decline in numbers but when it comes to woodcock hunting i have hunted those and i see a pile of those in the spring when we're consulting as we're and it's always correlated with kind of the diversity in the timber stand where oh we get into a pocket that's got kind of uh, a couple trees blew down or lightning strikes so there's this um this change in plant communities it seems like there's a direct correlation with them um there talk to me a little bit about the woodcock and and woodcock management yeah it's it's again you nailed it that diversity and to me i I associate woodcock a little more with the earlier early successional states and actually, I, I got to thinking as a habitat manager about woodcock as my instant gratification species. So if you took a fescue field and, you know, you burned that thing down in September or October, uh, within just a few seasons, probably from the seed bank, you're going to start getting woodcock in there. As you start getting some of the asters and the forbs. Uh, and then even as you start getting some encroachment from some of the woody stuff, shrubs and locusts, you know, that gets to be really good woodcock habitat. Also, um, like shrublands along streams, and certainly woodcock do a lot of their foraging in moist soils. They don't only spend time in moist soils, but if you've got some alder or willow thickets or uh, red osier dogwood, gray stem dogwood, along low-lying areas and shrubby cover, 
man, that's that's bingo right there for woodcock, especially if, if it's adjacent to some upland old field habitat or some young forest too. Mm. Awesome. Yep. But the neat thing about woodcock is if you go and manage your property now, it's not like rough droughts that, you know, aren't migratory. You know, that you create some good habitat conditions and those woodcock are filling the skies, moving back and forth every spring and fall. They look down there, they they see good habitat, they're gonna say this is where the party's at and they, they stop in. So they reoccupy your new habitat much quicker, which is why you know, I call them the instant gratification curve. That is awesome. That that true words haven't been spoken. That's for sure. I I think, you know, I, I've tried to talk to our landowners, or I've talked to our landowners on on doing this work for um for the white-tailed deer for the most part, and it's always a you already have deer, you already have good deer. This work is you're not going to see a, a a monstrous change for your white-tailed deer, but if you're in grouse country and and you've seen the occasional one every couple of years and you start doing this work, you're going to know you're making an improvement when you start seeing them more regularly or you start seeing uh, higher populations of grouse or bobwhite quail or pheasants for some of our guys in, in Iowa. Um, they're a great indicator of the quality of habitat you have. And so if you're doing the timber management, if you guys are in uh, timber country and you're doing this timber management and you start seeing more grouse and you start uh or you're down in the southeast you start hearing more quail and see more quail it's just a great indicator of the quality of uh habitat you have on your landscape that's another neat thing about woodcock is in the spring uh when you're not even thinking about hunting them uh you can go out and you can hear males displaying in the spring it's a neat opportunity they're just such a quirky little bird too with doing the whole evening sky dance and, you know, migrating all that way. Those little birds will fly 400 miles in a night, which to me is just incredible for how they're built. But it really speaks to the need for that high-quality habitat at stopover because if you just flew on those little wings 400 miles, you better have a good place to dive in with some security cover and ability to, to refuel for 24 hours. Absolutely. If you haven't ever experienced that show, you you definitely need to find some in your area and check them out in spring because it is really really cool to watch, and and here. Enjoy your property for sure. Absolutely. How do you think? I know we're running out of time, and we went we covered. I knew there was not going to be any problem finding content in this podcast. But how do you think? Let's tie this into getting kids in the outdoors. Um, when it comes to whitetail deer hunting, it really takes a special type or a special hunt to get a kid hooked on the outdoors through whitetail deer hunting. I'll, I, and I'm saying that from firsthand experience because I didn't enjoy deer hunting at a, as a young kid, but I enjoyed the heck out of upland bird hunting. So do you think there's a way that increasing the... the Increasing the habitat for grouse and woodcock is a great way to get more get the family involved. It really is, and the connection there with recruiting new hunters, and this isn't just kids; it's um, young adults. Yeah, young adults, and what is it? I've heard them late onset hunters. Yeah, but the link there, guys, is dogs. We've got data for this, too, that really shows when you bring a dog into the mix, that is a fantastic recruiting tool. And I have it in my house right now with my middle daughter. She has absolutely no interest in harvesting a deer. I've had her on several hunts, and, you know, she gets big brown eye syndrome, and she just doesn't want to do that. I really appreciate that and respect that she is all about working with dogs, though. So for her, she's really going to enjoy that part of it. So, yep, for the uplands, the dog really can bring it. That is, nobody's ever mentioned that on the podcast, and I think that would be a great point for, for a lot of our clients and, and our listeners. The question has always been, how can I get my wife and my my kids to enjoy the farm as much as I do? And we've talked about planting pollinators for the flowers, and so the wife can see those during the summer and fall and spring. Um, but using other small game hunts or, or different activities to get the family involved is a great way. And you guys, uh, getting the, the dog involved, 
uh, or getting a bird dog in, involved in this is a great way. Hopefully you guys caught that. What species, yeah. what what breed of dog do you guys, uh, What what's your breed, your go-to breed for, for uh, hunting? This is, I'm at, a, at an interesting point right now. I grew up uh, with beagles, and we did a lot of cottontail hunting and, you know, small game hunting over beagles, and whether that was woodcock or pheasants or whatever. But grew up with beagles, now have a setter, but I'm looking at my own property now, and I'm probably not going to have rough grouse there, but I can make some fantastic cottontail habitat, and I could get kids to get home, and we can kick the dog out you know, the back door and make an evening hunt. So I'm putting a pretty good push on at home to have a beagle pup added <laughs> into the mix with my English setter. And, you know, this is kind of the thing that in, in the past, this might have gotten you kicked out of the rough grouse society, but... Um, yeah, there's more, there's more to it than that. And when you look at that woodcock habitat, also fantastic cottontail habitat. I, I was hoping you were going to make that connection for people. Uh, we've talked so much about small game and their importance on the landscape and how cottontails, so a lot of people don't see the cottontails that they used to. And uh, it all comes back to a decline in the quality of habitat. And so all the stuff that you guys are talking about and implementing on your on your property for uh, the rough grouse could also be hugely important and uh, and needed for other species like the cottontail rabbit. We're trying we're trying to pull we're going to pull Sean into I, I don't know what breed is going to decide on he's got a yeah maybe he's tossed up right now that's <laughs> that's the challenge right now but I've got a Chesapeake Bay Retriever which is. You know, not much of an upland dog. He's definitely <laughs> hardcore waterfowl through and through. Um, I've taken him out forcefully to upland hunt a couple times, and he just looks at me like, I don't see any geese here. What are we doing? <laughs> so, yeah. We're, uh, we're looking at lots of different uh, lots of different options right now, trying to figure out whether I want to go the pointer route, whether I want to just uh, stay with a, a flushing-style dog or what have you. But, uh, yeah, it. It, it is interesting with the upland style of hunting and and using that as a recruitment tool just to kind of circle back on that part of the conversation a little bit, whether it's getting youth out or just getting any new hunter out. You know, it's it's a heck of a lot more fun than, than deer hunting is. You know, you don't have to get up at, oh, dark 30 in the morning to get out there. You can kind of sleep in. You can make breakfast and get up and, and go. Um, but then you also have the social aspect of it. So whether you're trying to get your spouse or your kids involved uh, or just a friend that you work with, you know, who's kind of expressed an interest in it, um, you know, you're out walking side by side and you've got the dog out there with you. And so you've got that element into it. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about scent control. You don't have to worry about wind direction. You don't have to worry about all the different crazy things that, that we all do as bow hunters as well, too. You can just go out there and, walk around and have some fun absolutely yeah that's a that's a big part of it i've always described my my ideal farm has so many different things so many different components on it and a big part of that is you know i grew up on a cattle or with cattle on with the family farm and so the cattle are always going to be a huge part of that um, but we're going to have areas that are planted in these diverse native grasses, so it's it's great summer grazing for the cows, but it's great habitat for the quail. It's great habitat for the uh, for the cottontail rabbits. And then we go into woodlands where we have this component of understory growth that's great for the small game as well as as well as the deer. And uh, and I, sometimes when I describe that to people, they look at me especially my hardcore deer hunting buddies, they look at me like I'm crazy because I'm like, I can't wait to hunt rabbits and hopefully one day maybe kick some quail up. And they're like, but those are your bedding areas for the deer. And I'm like, I don't care. I want I want to have that experience with uh, friends and family. And so um, you guys, yeah, absolutely. We're talking about enjoying the outdoors for, from all aspects, not just one species. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's... I. I take a generalist approach to it with, with my own hunting styles as well, too. I mean, I, there is a season, and then there's an animal to be pursued in that season. I want to be out there doing it. It doesn't matter if it's early September duck hunting or late season goose hunting. Um, the exception I'll put in there is maybe those first two weeks of November, I'm going to be a, 
be a whitetail deer hunter. But outside of that, man, I just I want to be out there enjoying it all, whether it's squirrel, rabbit, grouse, pheasant, turkey, what have you. Um, and having that diverse habitat and, and places to go that offer that, you get that diversity in your species as well that you can get out there and pursue and just enjoy it all. It's out there for, for all of us to go partake in. 100%. Couldn't agree more, Sean. Let's talk about, I know we're, we're up on our, on our time, but let's talk about a little bit of our, our giveaway. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's kind of the, uh, the origins of, um, you know, us kind of reconnecting. We're, um, <clears throat> through our, our friend Sean Clarkson out there who, uh, said, Hey guys, why don't we do something together? The missions of, of both of y'all's organizations overlap so much. Let's do something to, to help co-promote. And so we're going to be kicking off, um, probably by the time this podcast goes in early June, we'll be launching this little social media campaign, really to, to bring awareness to each other's sites. And, uh, it's going to be a pretty simple, you know, premise behind it um, to participate. All people have to do is make sure that they're liking and following both the Rough Grouse Society and Land and Legacy. Uh, and I believe we're going to have them tag a friend uh, in those posts that we start putting out there in early June. Um, and so it's going to run for, I think, about five days or so, just a, a short, quick, almost like a prescribed fire type of burn for social media. Um, just to get more interaction on, on both of our sites. And then we're going to be giving away uh, Rough Grouse membership, some uh, Rough Grouse swag, as well as you guys are going to be generous enough to kick in some London Legacy swag as well, too. For sure. And I hope I hope everybody enjoys it and, and is able to to join us on that campaign and share with their buddies. And, and uh, hopefully we can get a lot of people uh, on board with Rough Grouse Society as well as Landon Legacy and um, doing more for the habitat. That's what it's all about. I mean, habitat is, is where it's at. You know, that's the key to all of these different types of things that we love to do. And we've got to have the good habitat to be able to go out and, and have that access. Absolutely. Fellas, thank you so much for coming on. Keep up the good fight. And uh, last, before you guys get out of here, how can they find you once more? RoughGrouseSociety.org. Go to the website there and uh, find some of the events that are going on, and that's an opportunity to, to get with your fellow hunter conservationists. And, you know, the Rough Grouse Society, we're just we're a vessel to, to help, help all this stuff happen. So, yeah, go to the website, find an event, and let's get together. Awesome. There you have it. There's a ton of information there on the website as well, too. Um, the top right corner want to join you just click right there and, and become a member um you can scroll down the page and find out where the events are there's events going on all over the place and then you know, we did talk about some of the different habitat projects that we've been involved with over the years um you know there's a there's an active map on there where you can see where some of those drummer funds are used um in various states across the country so that money that's raised at those events you know is staying there within those states to do habitat enhancement so people can continue going out and enjoying wildlife. Awesome. Fellas, thank you so much for coming on. It was great catching up with you, hearing all about Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society. Awesome stuff, and uh, hopefully everybody will go check them out. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you.